at the end of this year, I, I don't see how inflation on a year over year basis can be less than 7%. And, and at the end of 2023, the same exercise is probably gonna have, have you around 6%. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Inflation remains at a 41-year high and continues to severely pinch households when paying for food, gas, and nearly everything else. How much longer will it plague us, and might it get even worse from here? To find out, we welcome Steve Hankey back to the program. Steve's professor of applied economics at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and the last time he appeared on this program, he correctly predicted that America's Consumer Price Index, or CPI, would hit 9%, which it just did last month. Steve, thanks so much for joining us again today. Good to be with you, Adam. All right, Steve. Well, look, um, inflation is still front and center. Uh, I just gave you props there for your very prescient call that you made uh, when you were on the program last. I want to dig into that pretty deeply with you in this conversation. Real quickly, though, I'd like just to start up at the very top of things, if you don't mind. Um, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all my guests at the beginning here. What is your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Uh, I, I would say, um, the, let's start with the U.S. and then and then we'll kind of broaden it out a little bit. The, the U.S. the inflation is is definitely baked in the cake because the excess money that's been created in the past by the Fed is still hanging around and and still has to leak out into the economy. So, I think by the end of this year, if you run even the simplest kind of numbers you're going to still end up with inflation at, at 7% and 2023 might be down just a little but six let's say 6% so it's it's drifting all the way into 2024 and if you look uh, at the break even rates that are baked into the market right now, the, the, the two-year break-even rate is, is only about 3.6%. So, so the markets, I don't think, have this thing right. I mean, bas basically, since this whole thing started, the work John Greenwood and I did, uh, it, we've been right on target, right in the bullseye, and the, and the markets have just been off. They, they've never digested this, the, the fact that we have a, a, a great inflation right now and they still haven't digested it. So they, they're, they're going on and on and they've bought into the, all these ad hoc theories for why we have inflation. It was COVID, then, then, uh, then the whole thing was just a temporary supply chain glitch that was gonna be over very soon. And, and then the oil market and, and, then, and then Putin, you know, it's the latest thing. And, and all these things are really ad hoc explanations for why we are witnessing so much inflation. There, there is only one cause underlying it all and that's an excess 
amount of money that's been created. And that, and that is a result of step one, the, the government started spending a lot of money uh, when COVID hit in early 2020. I mean, Trump was the president then, but there was a lot of spending. And then, and then Biden comes in and, and the spending really goes on steroids. And as a result of all this spending, the government deficit goes way up. And who purchases the bonds that are financing the deficit, the Federal Reserve? And when they do that, they, they crank up the printing press. And so we've had this huge increase in the money supply since February of 2020. The, the cumulative increase in the money supply is about 40%, almost 41%. So of that 41%, we, we use some of it to accommodate real economic activity, real growth, real GDP growth, and, and some of it also to accommodate increased demand for money. And we're still left with, with about a 30% cumulative increase that's excess, that's, that's come, will eventually come into the system as, as inflation. So that's, that's, that's why I, I say we've got this inflation thing with us. So inflation is with us in the US. We also have a very high probability of a recession, I think maybe 70%. Now, if you go to Europe, the situation's even worse than, than the United States. And if you go to the UK, it's even worse. So, so those are two, you know, we are talking about two, two big economies in addition to the United States that are facing the stagflation kind of scenario. We also have China, very big economy, and, and they have locked down the, and have this zero COVID policy that, yeah, if you lock everybody down, keep them home, what happens? Well, the economy slows down. Now their inflation, by the way, is in pretty good shape in, in, uh, in, in China. Um, it's, it's running now at about two and a half percent, excuse me, 2.1%, 2.1%, which gets back to this money supply thing, Adam. They have control their money supply. So the idea that inflation is some global thing, this is a lot of nonsense. It's always local. It's produced by local central banks. Whatever the local central bank is doing will affect the quantity of money and the quantity of money is what drives ultimately inflation. If you look at Japan, for example, they have an inflation rate of 2.5%. The money supply has not been growing as rapidly as it has in the United States or in Europe or the United Kingdom. You look at Switzerland, they have an inflation rate of 2.9%. And again, the Swiss National Bank has been keeping the money supply under control and they have rel relatively low inflation at 2.9%. So there are just so many things out there that people are reading in the press, Adam, and the, and the financial reports from investment banks every single day, it's, it's just all wrong. Inflation is not a global, it is a local, point number one. 
Inflation is not caused by all these ad hoc reasons that we see in the newspaper all the time. So they're still going on about supply chains and, and, and the, the Putin effect on the oil market and so forth. It, it's all tangled up with the money supply. And, and in this regard, for your viewers, I think my 95% rule is what they should keep in mind. And that is 95% of whatever they're reading in the financial press is either wrong or irrelevant. 95%, and it's probably great. <laughs> it's probably greater now. Anyway, that, all right. That's, well, that's kind of an overall, somewhat, shall we say, disturbing picture because we we do have a lot of inflation in, in many places, not Japan, not China, not Switzerland, and a few other places. But there's a lot a lot of inflation out there that's been created by these local central banks. And we have the prospect of recessions hitting. And the recessions hitting are a combination of what? These central banks getting afraid of inflation and starting to tighten up. And, and most of them, since they don't know where inflation even came from, most of the central bankers, they never predicted it. I have some doubts that they know how to tame it and they might overdo it. And if they overdo it, of course, uh, that'll send the economies into recessions. That's one problem. The other big problem are these sanctions that are being placed on Russia. This is a, a, a big problem. We've, we've weaponized the financial system, uh, kicked, kicked Russia out of the, the dollar-based SWIFT swift payment system, for example, and, and put a, a variety of sanctions on Russia that have very much disrupted the oil market completely. And, and that those disruptions uh, do cause problems. And, and that's where the real economy gets hit. It, it isn't the inflation that gets hit. It's the real economy that gets hit with all these disruptive factors that are the result of negative unintended consequences stemming from these sanctions, which every, every week we have a whole raft of new sanctions being put on Russia. And, and these affect things, in particular, the relative prices of, of food and energy are being affected by this. All right. Well, look, Steve, you uh, great answer. You touched on a whole number of things that I want to talk about with you here. So um, bear with me as we just sort of dive into them all together. But first, it sounds like uh, you've just given Milton Friedman uh, a wonderful victory lap here uh, with his quote, uh, you know, inflation is, is where is it everywhere and always uh, a monetary all, phenomenon. Uh, all, always and everywhere. That's that's Milton. Yeah, he this is this is Milton Friedman 101, no question about it. What's called the quantity theory of money, the quant and and the quantity theory of money is encapsulated in an identity, a, a famous identity called the equation of exchange. MV money times velocity is equal to PY. P is the price level, and Y is real economic activity. So if, if we look at that equation of exchange, that identity, it's an identity 
and it must be true. So, and if you know how to use it, of course, it, it, it's very helpful. And that's what John Greenwood and I did when we predicted that now we would have inflation. We early last year we predicted that now we would have inflation of six percent, and we said maybe as high as nine percent in the United States. Well, what do we have? We have eight point six. So that's pretty. It's pretty good. It's pretty darn close. So, and so whether you like this equation of exchange or not, or you like Milton Friedman or not, we used it and we were right. And, and, and the thing that's fascinating to me is there's very little reportage on this. If you look at the press, okay, Greenwood and I write articles in the Wall Street Journal and a National Review, and yeah, you, you see it there. But have the reporters picked up on it? No, they've canceled this. In other words, we, you have two economists who have a model, an identity, MV equals PY. We used it. It's been around since the 16th century and is very reliable if used properly. And we got the right number. You, you would think that would be all over the press. Well, it, you, you have to comb through the press very carefully to find any any reporting about what Greenwood and I actually did. Right, which I think underscores your uh, other important equation there with the ninety five percent rule. <laughs> it's just that. Well, it, uh, you know, the ninety five percent rule is golden, and and the equation of exchange, the old quantity theory of money, is gold, golden too. Now, if you look at the quantity theory and the equation of exchange, Adam, it, it's this identity and use it properly. If you solve for M and, 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 and solving for M, what you want to do, that's what I call the golden growth rate. We're solving for M and plugging in some numbers here that would give us the rate of growth in the money supply that's consistent with the Fed hitting its inflation target of 2%. So let's do that. So we have M is still on the left-hand side of the identity and N, we pull the V around to the right-hand side. So we V, v becomes a negative number, it's negative. So we have M equals P, change in P, change in Y and minus the change in velocity. Now velocity happens to be a, a trending at a very constant rate of close to minus 2% per year. So we've got a minus and a minus that's a plus. So we have what? 2% is a P, that's an inflation target. 2% is roughly the GDP potential in the US. And, and then we've got the last thing we're adding is 2%, which, which is the velocity number. So two plus two plus two is what? Six. Six. Six, six is about the golden growth rate, five, five to six. And, and it has been growing what? Almost 18% in the United States, three times faster than the rate that would be consistent with hitting an inflation target of 2%. And that, that is why we have so much inflation in the United States. That's, that's why when I say 
excess growth in the money supply, the money supply has been growing much more rapidly than the golden growth rate consistent with hitting an inflation target of 2%. And you get that all of that out of this little identity that, that I just attempted to walk you through, MV equals PY. All right, and, no, that's great. You're giving us a nice- And, 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 and if you look, of course, Milton Friedman has the, the classic entry in the Palgrave Dictionary, which is the most famous dictionary in economics. It's on the quantity theory. And of course, if you read Milton Friedman on the quantity theory in the entry in the Palgrave Dictionary, you will find MV equals PY. And he explains how to, how to use it, what it's all about. All right. Well, I love the fact that you're walking us through, you know, sort of a graduate level uh, progression here, but showing how it actually has real world, you know, implications that we're living through right now. So where I want to go with this is um, you've got this concept called the monetary bathtub, which is sort of what you're talking about here. Um, and right before I ask you to explain it further, um, you know, you're talking about here, we, we had a huge excess in the currency supply and uh, we're getting inflation. And, you know, Friedman would have said, hey, no surprise there, right? So, you know, the pandemic hits uh, within the next year and a half, the Federal Reserve increases its balance sheet by over $4 trillion. Uh, Congress issues over $5 trillion in, in fiscal stimulus. Um, how did the Fed get this so wrong? How, how did they not think that this was going to unleash well, the inflation it has? The, the Fed got it wrong because they, they, they've canceled the quantity theory of money. They've canceled Milton Friedman, in short. And that, why? That's, and, 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 well, this is, this is interesting. Uh, Modern post-Keynesian economics, is, that, that, that is the kind of economics that is taught almost all graduate programs around, around the world, literally, for the last 30 years. So, so the, the trend and dominance in, in the teaching of macroeconomics has is, is changed a lot and, and basically just destroyed the equation of exchange and quantity theory of money kind of idea. In other words, for me and for somebody like John Greenwood, my associate, MV equals PY is, is the theory of everything in macroeconomics. But that, that's, been, that's been kind of intellectually, shall we say, canceled and moved aside. So that's one factor. The other factor, uh, and reason that the Fed hasn't been looking at the quantity theory is, is the composition of staff members at, at the Federal Reserve. You've, you've got uh, over 450 economists at the Fed in Washington. In, in the whole system, you, you have over 700, I think 785 economists. Now, none of, none of them got it right. That's, that's your question. I mean, these are these are the technicians, the technocrats. Why? And, and if you look at the composition from a political point of view, at headquarters, the Democrats on the staff outnumber the Republicans 48.5 to 1. 48.5 to 1. So they're essentially all Democrats. 
Now, if you're a Democrat, who's the economist that really has to be canceled and taken out of the picture? It's Milton Friedman. And enemy number one of, of the Democratic Party machine is, is Milton Friedman. In fact, in 2020, President Biden actually said, and, and this is a quote, Milton Friedman isn't running the show anymore. Interesting. And for folks that aren't as steeped in economics as you are, can you just explain why apparently his policies are sort of anathema to them? I, I think they, they're, well, number one, he's a free market economist so, and, and, and an anti-statist. Okay. It, Milton, Milton Friedman thinks the optimum, for thought, unfortunately, he's passed away, he isn't with us anymore, except in, in podcasts and so forth. And, and, and he's, he's very effective and alive and kicking in podcasts which drive, that they drive the Democrats nuts because he, he's a very clear pedagogue. He's, he's a good teacher. He's, he's a, good, a great economist, of course, Nobel laureate, and, and very much a, a free market, small government type. He thinks the optimum size of the government should be about 10 to 15% of GDP. Well, we're, we're like three times larger than that. Right, right. So anybody <laughs> who's big government obviously isn't a fan of it. Right. So it's big governments versus small government, uh, discipline and control of the money supply, uh, balanced budgets, all, all of these things that, that obviously don't sit very well with, with Democrats. They, they want a bigger government. They, they, they have embraced modern monetary theory, which essentially says that you can spend as much as you want and let the central bank finance it and it's not gonna cause inflation. Well, we've seen how well that experiment worked okay. uh, in the last couple of years in the United States. So, so that's, you have, you have two things going on. One is that the economic models are, are not, consistent with the equation of exchange. They, they're, they're a different kind of model. They, they don't include money. The, 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 the modern post-Keynesian macroeconomic models do not include money. Well, the equation of exchange and quantity theory of money is, is focused on money is, is the big elephant in the room. So, so that's the theory is different. And then you look at the makeup of the staff and their political in inclinations. And I think that is significant because they don't like all the things that Milton Friedman stands for basically. So, and one, one, one big thing he stands for happens to be the quantity theory of money. So if you, if you don't like Friedman, you're canceling Friedman you're canceling a lot of ideas that just don't go down very well with the Democrats. And, and one of those happens to be the quantity theory of money. Got it. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is a big reason the Fed sort of missed the implications of all the money printing is an ideological blindness, right? Sort of, yeah. sort of the analogy yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind as I hear you talk, it's like 
pilots getting into a plane and saying, you know what, we're just agreeing the altimeter, we don't care about, right? <laughs> you know, just like they're, they're ignoring the quantity of money, the pilots are ignoring something that's critical to actually flying an airplane successfully. And of course, if you do that, it's not likely going to end well for you. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a central bank uh, and, and you don't have money on the altimeter, you're flying blind. Right. And if, if you don't have that altimeter with money on it, you, you're also, if you're trying to control inflation, you're kind of grasping for straws. You don't, you don't know exactly what to do. So, so that's, that's why I say there, there's a high probability they'll make a mistake when they try to control inflation. They, they didn't get it right. They didn't anticipate it. They, they had no idea what, what was going on. And, and now they're hitting the panic button and, and indicating that they want to get inflation under control. And I think they're grasping for straws because they don't have the right theory. They don't have the right model of the whole thing. They don't have the quantity theory of money. And in fact, Chairman Powell last year actually in congressional testimony said we had to unlearn this. We had to unlearn the quantity theory of money and the fact that there's a relationship between the growth and the money supply and, and nominal growth and GDP. And the nominal growth and GDP, of course, contains a real component. That's, that's this why the kind of potential of two or a little over 2%. And, and the rest of whatever happens to be going on with nominal GDP is inflation. So you've got inflation plus the real component equals nominal GDP. And the equation of exchange is just a model for determining where nominal GDP is going. All right, okay. So I'm gonna pound through a couple of things here, Steve, just to get to some key questions coming out of this. But um, so, you know, it sounds like you're saying, hey, look, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a new criticism of the Fed that they sort of lurch from policy mistake to policy mistake. Sounds like this ideological blindness that they had to Friedman's work in the, uh, the uh, uh, equation of exchange has definitely exacerbated things uh, here in the here and now. Um, it's funny, even Michael Burry just came out with a tweet uh, the other day basically citing the bullwhip effect, saying he expects sort of the same thing, which is the Fed is going to lurch from one extreme policy to the next, trying to sort of chase the, the, the shockwaves of, of inflation and its policy attempts to control it. And it's going to be kind of just, you know, following along, making the situation worse every time it, 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 it lurches in a different direction here. Um, so I want to... I want to um, I want to talk about the monetary bathtub for a second, and I want to get to the key question of, okay, so where do you think things are going to go from here? And you already gave us a little preview that it sounds like you think inflation is going to stay pretty high for, for a fair while here. But this monetary bathtub concept you have, um, I've sort of been referring to it um, in previous videos as the pig through the python, where you know we, we pushed all this new money into the system, and it, it takes a certain amount of time to, to work its way through. And um, a, a key question that I honestly haven't really had a ton of visibility into is how much of the pig is left in the Python? And it sounds like you're saying there's still a fair amount 
uh, again, you use the monetary bathtub analogy. I'd love for you to explain that a little bit further, but it sounds like there's still a lot of excess that's sloshing around that bathtub. Yes, um, the monetary bathtub uh, is as follows. You, you kind of visualize, you know, you've got the, the faucet and, and through the faucet, the, the money is coming into the tub. And then you've got two, two fundamental drains. One drain is the drain taking money out of the bathtub to facilitate real economic growth. And, and the other drain is one that accommodates the increased demand for money as the economy is growing. So, uh, and, and then, and then if, if there's something left in the bathtub, that is what goes out the overflow valve or the inflation valve. And what we've had since February, 2020, going into the faucet, we've had a, a, about a 40, 41% cumulative increase in the money supply since February of 2020. So that's gone into the tub. And those two fundamental drains for real economic activity and the demand for money, that's drained about 10 or a little bit more than 10 per percentage points of, of those 40 percentage points out. So you're left in, with an excess in there of about 30% cumulative. And, and that comes out with a lag of long and variable lags, comes out as inflation. The lags are usually between 12 and 24 months. That, that's why I'm saying the thing's kind of baked in the cake, Adam, the inflation. You, you, you can't just turn it off immediately. Even, even if the Fed reduces the growth rate in the money supply measured by M sub two, and they reduce that down to a golden growth rate of 5%, you're, you're still going to get this excess coming out. And, and, and it'll take a couple of years for that to fully drain out of the tub. And All right, so this is really important. I think this is a missing puzzle that other speakers I've talked to haven't had that you're providing here, which is there's more inflation baked in the cake here. There's more of this excess sloshing around in the bathtub than maybe most folks realize, or there's more pig left in the python, to use my analogy. So much so that you think it's going to keep the CPI high, and if I, took good notes at the beginning. I think you think it's going to average around 7% this year and maybe around 6% in 2023. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. At the end of this year, I, I don't see how inflation on a year-over-year -year basis can be less than 7%. And, and at the end of 2023, the same exercise is probably going to have, have you around 6%. Okay, so maybe, just to correct, I was maybe, wrong. There weren't averages; they were the end of year numbers. End of year, end of year, year over year. So, the end of 2022, December 2022 versus December 2021, the percentage change can't be really lower than seven percent. Okay, so um, let me ask a couple of important questions from here. Then, so first off. So it sounds like what you're saying is, is we, we will be seeing disinflation going forward, but like extremely mild disinflation where CPI is still very high. 
Right, and and the re the reason for that is is this big excess that's in the tub. Yeah. Right. It's got to come out that drain. It can't come all out at once. Right. It just takes it's, its time. It, it's going to go out the overflow valve, and 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 it takes time. And as I say, the, the these lags are are long and variable, but they're usually a, a run about twelve to twenty four months. Okay, so I want to marry this now. Oops, sorry, you had one more question or one more point? No, no. Okay, so I, I want to marry this now to your concerns about recession, where you you pegged about a 70% recession risk, which is high. Um, and a lot of the folks that I talk to uh, on this channel agree with you that they, they're also very concerned about this. So um, if we enter a world here where uh, economic growth continues slowing, and it looks like GDP uh, for Q2 is going to be 0% or negative, right? So we'll have net contracted for the year GDP-wise so far. Um, these, this high inflation, it hurts consumers, it reduces consumer spending, which is 70% of GDP. Uh, it hurts corporations, it, it compresses margins. Um, so, you know, it, we could easily go into a recession here. It sounds like you would sort of categorize this as sort of like classic stagflation, where prices remain really high, but economic growth, you know, stagnates. Um, is this going to be an entirely stagnationary recession if we go into one, or do you see it at some point tipping more into stronger disinflation, uh, even maybe more I, deflation once the bathtub is is more empty? Uh, I, I don't really have a profile uh, or, or even a, a, a duration on, on that or, or severity for the recession. All, all I'm convinced of, and I think the, the main thing that people have to be concerned about always when if they're trading, for example, is what, what's the direction of things? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think they're going down. How far down? I, I, I don't have any particular insights about that or, or the severity of things. I, I don't have any particular insight about that either. The one thing that I'm pretty convinced of as you say, a 70% probability of a recession puts me up on the, the high end of the distribution. In, in other words, some people think there's a zero chance and, 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 the, and the ones that think that there's a pretty good chance the high end of the distribution would be up around 70%. For example, Larry Summers, a former Secretary of Treasury, uh, economist at, at professor at Harvard. Summers thinks that probability is about 65%. So, okay. So, and, and he's but, a smart so guy. He, and, and one of the guys like you who warned about the inflationary repercussions of what the Fed was doing last year, right? Yeah. Yes. Summers did, did warn about that. And uh, for, for different reasons than I did. See, he, he, some, Summers analysis, he, he he got the direction of things right. We are going to have more inflation. He didn't put a, a precise number on it as Greenwood and I did, but but his theory he's he's a fiscalist, not a monetarist like myself, and his his reasoning was that we were spending a lot of money and the deficit was increasing, 
and, and that was going to overheat the economy and we would have inflation. So that, that, that's that's in, in, in simple terms, that's his, his, his analytics. Okay, My, which I guess he could have declared victory on in Q4 of last year when we got up to six point whatever inflation and we had 6% GDP. <laughs> well, well, he, you know, it's, so as far as it goes, that, that's, that's fine. But what Greenwood and I, or Milton Friedman or monetarists do, we look at that deficit and the deficit, it depends on how it's financed, whether you get inflation or not. And if the Fed monetizes that deficit, which they did, they purchased most of the treasury bills and bonds that were right. issued, finance it, they create money to buy those bonds. And that's why the, you say, well, the Fed's balance sheet increased. You were talking about that earlier. It increased, why? Because they were buying bonds. And it was funding the, the what became the fiscal stimulus. Yeah, it was the enabler. Oh, right, right. So, so it, you you have to have the Fed and the central bank in the picture to have inflation in the picture, and go back to the equation of exchange MV equals PY. So, and and, and let's let's put it this way: if, if if the government spending would have increased, if the deficit increased. And if those bonds would have been sold instead of the Fed to the non-bank public, we wouldn't have had inflation. Because what, what happens? They'd sell the bonds to Adam and Steve and uh, you know this, this person, that person, and that takes money out of your pocket. Right, exactly. The money you supply have, would stay the same. Have, exactly. You have to pay, yeah, you have to pay, you have to pay for the bond. So you you give them money and you get a bond in exchange, and in that scenario, where that is not an inflationary scenario because no no money has has been created. There hasn't been any new money that's created. The only thing that's happened is some of your disposable income, some of my disposable income, is being sent to the government to buy the bonds, and we get a bond from the government. So. So we have no inflationary effect if that's the means of financing the government spending and government deficit. What we had instead was the bonds were being sold to the Fed and the Fed, they didn't reduce their disposable income to buy the bonds. They created money out of thin air and credited the government account for the purchase of the bonds that were eventually expanding their balance sheet like mad. And, and it's that increase in the money supply that cause of inflation gets, gets back to your quote about Friedman. Right. Infl inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That, that's, what, that's, that's how we're wrapping this story together, this conversation we're having. All right, great connecting of the dots there. So here's here's the key question I want to get to, which is <clears throat> um, the Fed has created this hot inflation, uh, which is creating lots of issues, um, both for households and for corporations. Um, it's got the administration in a total panic because it's a stone cold election killer, as every politician knows. Um, so uh, a lot of the people I and, and we think we're going to head into a recession here, right, which is also compounding the problem. Um, 
the Fed's uh, rate hike campaign that it's on right now and its initiation of quantitative tightening is certainly not going to help on the recession side of things. It's going to contribute to it. So a lot of what the people I talk to, the experts I talk to say is, is hey, the, the, the Fed is going to it's going to hike rates until it breaks something. And when it does, many of them think the Fed is going to then be forced to having to pivot back to easing. And I, I want to, A, get your sense of what you think the odds of a Fed pivot are, but also ask the question is, can the Fed really pivot if inflation is going to remain as persistently high as you think it will? Does that really hamstring the Fed from being able to go back to easing? Because if it does, it's just going to reignite the inflation problem even more. Uh, well, it, let, let, first, let's take it if they start raising rates and then. Our interview with Steve will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. And last, if the challenging macro outlook that Steve has detailed in this interview has you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth keeping in mind the trends and risks that Steve has mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our interview with Steve Hankey.